Hi, this is Bobby Kamari, and I want to thank you for listening to season two of the Living in Light podcast, where the whole season is going to be dedicated to the fabulous topic of sacred sexuality. I hope it blesses your socks off. Welcome to today's podcast titled The Naked Truth About Worldly Sex. Now, I'm sure some of you might listen to this podcast title and ask yourselves, like, is she still going on about counterfeit and worldly sex? And I am. (laughs) Because, honestly, there is so much that I want you guys to know so that you can receive these truths from the inside out. And as I've already mentioned a thousand times, like, I'm not here to just casually talk about sex or to provide entertainment. I really do want to unpack the actual mechanics and the undiluted truth about sexuality so that any rewiring that takes place in people's minds is so deeply rooted and so secure and unshakable upon the word of God. And I want these podcasts to literally be like surgery so that people aren't just placing bandages on wounds, but they're getting totally healed and made whole. And they're not just getting free, but they're staying free and liberating others. And that people aren't just gaining knowledge and understanding, but they are really receiving revelation and truth that pierces their inmost being. And that not only invites them into God's best, but can also be shared with the world around them. And so... In the last three podcasts, I addressed the repercussions and consequences of engaging in counterfeit intimacy from a physical, emotional and spiritual perspective. And so if you haven't listened to those episodes yet, feel free to have a little listen. But today I want to unpack what the most common versions of worldly sex actually are. So I'm going to talk about fornication, homosexuality, pornography and masturbation. And I'm going to share why I believe that they are simply not God's best for us, even though, yes, they bring some level of pleasure and satisfaction, but as common, normal, or as desirable sexual practices as they may have become, they are simply incompatible with God's original design for sexuality. Because the truth is that God's design for sex and sexuality is sheer brilliance. And when we navigate through our sexuality or engage in sex outside of that design, things actually cannot truly flourish the way that they were designed to. Because sexuality in its truest, most purest, most pleasurable and fruitful form can only really thrive inside a godly context. And like I've mentioned before, sexuality is a gift from God. He created us as sexual beings. And the word tells us that he was pleased with his handiwork. And as the unrivaled author of pleasure, it was also part of his original design to create fulfilling sex, the orgasm and the G-spot. And he designed us as sexual beings long before we ever became sinners. But unfortunately, since the fall, a distorted version of sex and sexuality has been presented to us by the enemy. And now the less traditional and religious and the more secular societies have become, sexual dysfunction has now not only become normal, but it's now openly desired, practiced, promoted and preferred. And this is why you can have a Netflix film like the recently released Cuties written and directed by a woman where 11 year olds are being sexualized. 
and where such a film can be praised and get awards at film festivals, with the film receiving so many five-star reviews, including from old men in like their 60s saying how much the film turned them on, where you have ordinary everyday people who think that this film is promoting art and culture as opposed to promoting paedophilia and why laws are now slowly being introduced to make paedophilia legal and it's also why a music video for the recent Cardi B song can be seen as a big win for sexual equality even by some Christians who believe that her parading herself erotically and talking about her genitalia and her sexual preferences is a good demonstration of a woman taking ownership of her sexuality when what it actually is is a satanic violation of precious image bearers of Christ who instead of being cherished and honoured are being pilfered and objectified and not just by others but by virtue of their own accord all in the name of sexual freedom. And of course we know that the fall in the Garden of Eden is the root cause of all this sexual dysfunction and perversion but there have been a few key cultural developments in the last 50 to 60 years that have really exposed the symptoms of a fallen sexually broken world in an undeniable way and these cultural markers have drastically shifted things away from God's original design when it comes to sexuality with detrimental repercussions which is what we've been exploring in the last few pods and so in terms of these cultural markers the church's silence when it comes to sex and morality over the last hundred years or so is a prime reason why sexual disorder is now the norm in many western nations whose values were actually once very traditional and they were built upon the absolute truths of judeo-christian values but we now live in a world where relativism reigns and relativism consequently denies that there is any one absolute way to live morally and obviously with christianity being on the decline in the west for decades as well as so much biblical illiteracy when it comes to sexuality and a lack of accurate biblical understanding of this subject, along with all the guilt and the shame associated with sexuality, the church really hasn't taken ownership of sexuality. And even when the church has perhaps had a voice, it hasn't usually been a positive voice in our culture. And at times the church has been as broken as the world when it comes to this issue. So because of the silence of the church, what's been left has been a huge vacuum in the spiritual and cultural landscape of our society which has then allowed worldly voices and anti-christ belief systems to dictate the status quo when it comes to sexuality and until fairly recently as a result of that there really haven't been many prominent christian voices either speaking positively about sexuality or role modeling biblical sexuality really well in different parts of society whether it's the arts and entertainment or sports or business or politics or even family and so now we actually find ourselves living in a time where the voice of the church when it comes to morality has pretty much been replaced by secular value systems and so secular antichrist ideals have now become the norm and christian belief systems are now seen as optional or irrelevant and more recently even as quite negative or hateful and even bigoted 
And biblical Christianity, which was once the foundation of the West, is now pretty much seen as totally countercultural. And society is far less concerned about what God might think when it comes to morality or sexual ethics, like it may have once been. And society is also far less concerned about what is best for the family or the community. And now it's more about what is best for the individual and what an individual gets to pursue in order to satisfy their desires and rights as an individual. And Andrew T. Walker, author of God and the Transgender Debate, actually speaks about these very issues in his book and highlights some other key factors that have led up to this point in our world where now pretty much anything goes when it comes to sexuality. And he also highlights the crazy shift that the contraceptive pill, abortion and the sexual revolution brought to the way people perceive sexuality, marriage and procreation. Because, as I've just mentioned, that there was obviously a time when society did follow biblical values when it came to sexuality. And, for example, two genders were the absolute norm. It was standard. You're either a male or a female. Your biological sex drove your gender. Your gender did not dictate your biological sex. And also, it was standard that sex was for marriage and that children were born within wedlock. And it's not to say that people didn't have sex before or outside of marriage or that babies weren't born out of wedlock, but there was a lot of shame and stigma attached when it would happen. But when the sexual revolution kicked in in the 1960s, it promoted the belief system that if it feels good, do it. And that our bodies are our own for us to enjoy in whatever way we want. And sexual freedom began to be seen as the highest standard for personal fulfillment. And at the same time, as the seemingly prudish and outdated values of Christianity were being challenged and rejected, and perhaps even because of them, this period was also when the contraceptive pill was made available. And this suddenly gave people license to disconnect the association between sex and procreation. And it changed people's perceptions about the purpose of sex. And this was a big deal because now the assumption was no longer that sex only takes place in marriage. Now sex could be purely about pleasure and not about procreation. And the belief that sex outside marriage is wrong became diluted. And lots of the risks associated with sex outside of marriage were now removed. And so if people did want to have sex outside of marriage, the fear of pregnancy was now gone. And then with the legalisation of abortion in the early 70s, it further separated the notion of having sex and giving birth. And it continued to eradicate the stigma associated with sex outside of marriage and procreation. And then this had a knock-on effect on the breakdown of the traditional family structure, invariably resulting in a lot of fatherlessness, which obviously still continues today. Divorces became the norm over time in Western society. Homosexual marriage over time then began to be seen as equal to heterosexual marriage. And more recently, the transgender ideology now being pushed as the norm. Yet the truth is that none of this is normal. 
the world has taken the misuse of sex, the perversion, the disorder of sex, the violation of sexuality, and it has normalized it and beautified it and made it look irresistible. And actually, this reminds me of an experience I had when I was walking down the King's Road a few years back. And the King's Road, for those that may know or may not know it, is a super swanky area in London, lots of really, really rich neighbourhoods and designer boutiques and really she-she shops, etc. And I saw a dog shop and the whole window display was filled with gorgeous dog donuts. And they were all in like the most beautiful colours and flavours and they all look so pretty. And I'm not a dog owner, so I don't know if dogs are into donuts, but I remember seeing this display and being baffed, just thinking, how odd is this? Because dogs don't eat donuts, or at least they weren't created to eat donuts, but because in this shop and maybe when it comes to you know the dog world, donuts have been made to look so beautiful and attractive that over time dog donut treats have become normal for dogs desirable for dogs who might even prefer a donut to a bone and it's kind of the same with sexual disorder because although we were never designed for masturbation or porn or homosexuality yet it has become so attractively presented to us that it's now common and desirable and in some cases preferable to god's original design And I have said this time and time again, but contrary to what some might think, when God preserves us from and instructs us not to engage in sex outside of marriage or in any other kind of sexual immorality, it's not because he's being a killjoy or a prude or super religious or boring, but our creator who loves us unconditionally and only desires good for us, has made us for God-modelled love of the highest calibre and for us to thrive as humans in our identity as male and female made in God's image. But when mankind engages in sexual sin, we actually cannot thrive and we cannot fulfil the design mandate that God gave to us as humanity in the first two chapters of Genesis a mandate pertaining to our identity and our purpose. And if you have listened to episode eight, you would have heard me share about how when we have sex outside of marriage, we end up forming soul ties, which fragment us and shatter our identities, which then has a knock-on effect on our purpose. But also, because God purposefully created us as heterosexuals to enter into covenant intimacy and to procreate and to take dominion of the earth as part of his original design, whenever we violate any of these dynamics, it's impossible for us to flourish, even when doing things outside of God's divine order might be the common, most popular, attractive, and even preferable way of doing things. So, let me unpack how the most common sexual practices in our world end up violating our original design and mandate as humans. And I'm going to begin by talking about fornication or sex before marriage. So I'm going to kick off by reading 1 Corinthians 6, 
um, 14 to 20 in the message translation and it says this god honored the master's body by raising it from the grave he'll treat yours with the same resurrection power until that time remember that your bodies are created with the same dignity as the master's body you wouldn't take the master's body off to a whorehouse would you i should hope not there's more to sex than mere skin on skin sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact as written in scripture the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies, these bodies that were made for God-given and God-modelled love, for becoming one with another. Or, didn't you realise that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works, so let people see God in and through your body. So by listening to this, we can recognise that when we choose to have sex outside of marriage, we fail to honour the person we are having sex with and we fail to honour ourselves as image bearers of Christ who deserve to be treated with dignity, the same dignity that we would treat the master's body with. So sex before marriage robs us of our dignity and because we are one with Christ, when we have sex with someone outside of covenant marriage, we are actually also stripping Jesus of dignity. And we can be deceived into thinking that sex is an expression of love, so surely there can't be anything wrong with it, even outside of marriage. But true love, agape love, unconditional love, doesn't need the condition of engaging in sex in order to prove that it's love. On the contrary, love gives. It doesn't take away. Lust takes away. And when we have sex with someone who isn't our spouse, we are actually taking something from them that isn't ours until marriage. We're stealing from the very person that we claim to have so much love and affection for. But this isn't true love. It may be eros love, a sexual love, or it may be lust or infatuation. But true love is able to sacrifice desire for honour and dignity. And sex outside of marriage also, according to this scripture, robs us of true commitment. Because when we engage in sex outside of marriage, no matter how devoted or loyal we may want to be in that relationship, because we're not bound in a covenant with one another, it does actually avoid commitment. Because it's that being fully known in Yada intimacy and yielding to unconditional love for one another that helps foster loyalty and helps a couple to remain committed even when the feelings wane. And I guess that's why they call it wedlock. Because once you've had a wedding, you're locked in. Or that's certainly how it was designed to be. But when you have sex outside of marriage, even if it's in a committed relationship, just because you've had sex, it doesn't actually bind you together for life. Like that lifelong commitment to one another is simply not there no matter how devoted you may have been to someone that relationship is still seen as something that you can uncommit from because you aren't married 
and sex outside of covenant marriage, according to this scripture, will also leave us lonely. Now, obviously, we live in a world where cohabiting is quite common, but without yada intimacy in the mix, you can never actually become one body, soul, and spirit, even if you live together as common in law partners, because sex is more than just skin on skin, which means that there's always part of you that's actually unreachable if you are not in a covenant marriage as one. And although when you have sex, you do obviously bond, it's illegal, which then creates demonic strongholds, even if you do end up getting married at a later date. And in Genesis 2.24, where we read that we cleave to our spouse as one flesh, in sex before marriage, we end up cleaving and becoming one flesh illegally, as I've said in previous episodes. And we also violate our capacity to cleave and be loyal and committed in marriage in the future. And when it comes to sex outside of marriage, it also tampers with our sex drive because God has ordained sex for the marital bed, and it's by his design that the sex drive can be totally unrestrained in marriage. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 2, that sex drives are strong, but marriages can contain them. And so when you're married, you can have as much sex, fun, and pleasure in your marital bed as you like. But when you awaken your sex drive before marriage, you actually violate your sex drive and rob yourself of the full potential of how your sex drive was designed to flourish. And as I've mentioned before, our sex drive isn't sinful. We were actually created by God as sexual beings with a sex drive, and it's a legitimate God-wired part of our sexuality, but the context to enjoy it is within marriage. And with God's help, we are designed to be able to steward our sex drive with honor and self-control, even outside of marriage. And when we have sex before marriage, we actually allow ourselves to be driven by our sex drive and we allow sex to become the driving force where instead of building a relationship on a foundation of emotional spiritual and relational intimacy and upon friendship when you base a relationship first and foremost on sexual intimacy you end up forsaking the true foundation of love and the issue with sex is, even if you don't want it to be the driving force, the minute things become physical, they invariably do become the driving force. But a true foundation for love runs far deeper than the physical act of sex. And it's built upon covenant intimacy and upon being fully known in every dimension. But if sexual attraction takes center stage in your relationship, then that one physical dimension ends up being the driving force and when the sexual attraction runs out because at some point it will the other aspects of the relationship are unlikely to be able to sustain the relationship because they wouldn't have had the opportunity to actually become strong enough and actually this is backed by a secular study and i'm sure there's many of them but i'm just going to talk about one particular one that um was taken several years ago by scientists at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University in Utah, where they interviewed more than 2,000 married people about when they first had sex. And they found in this study that couples who delay sex after their wedding enjoy stronger relationships later in life. And 
An analysis of the results showed that couples who wait until marriage before having sex enjoyed a much healthier relationship with their partner than those who started having sex in the early part of their relationship. And in particular, relationship stability was rated 22% higher. Relationship satisfaction was 20% higher. Quality of sex was 15% higher. And even communication between partners was 12% higher. And for couples who became sexually involved later in their relationship, but before marriage, the benefits were about half as strong. And so what this study actually found that while it's common for couples to explore their sexual compatibility before making a long-term commitment, the researchers argued that too much emphasis is put on the physical side of a relationship and too little on trust, loyalty and commitment. And the professor who led the study said there's more to a relationship than sex, but we did find that those who waited longer were happier with the sexual aspect of their relationship. And he said it was because they'd learned to talk and have the skills to work with issues that came up. And then this was echoed by another professor who made this statement that couples who hit the honeymoon too early and prioritise sex promptly at the onset of a relationship often find their relationship underdeveloped when it comes to the qualities that make relationships stable and spouses reliable and trustworthy. And actually, this is also so true because when we have sex before marriage, we might think it's because we love and cherish each other so much and that being sexually intimate is a demonstration of that desire, love and passion. But actually, what it does is it breaks trust. Because if you aren't going to value one another's dignities and bodies before marriage and you're going to dishonor one another before marriage, what's to say that you can be trusted that if you do then get married that you're not going to break one another's trust and do that with someone else and commit adultery in your marriage? And so even if it feels good at the time and it looks like it might even feel like love, True love, the kind of love that we've been created for, is built upon covenant intimacy and it's built upon being fully known. And outside of covenant, you simply can't be fully known. And it's exactly the same for the next topic that I want to chat about, which is homosexuality. And again, contrary to a common misconception, that God wants to keep homosexual people from enjoying love and marriage or that he is approved or outdated in his thinking or hateful. The truth is that mankind is incapable of thriving within a homosexual context because homosexuality simply is unable to fit God's framework for identity or for covenant intimacy or for family or for taking dominion. Like all the kingdom principles that God wants us to abundantly flourish in when it comes to purpose, sex and covenant intimacy become impossible to fulfill when the practice of homosexuality enters the mix. And aside from the fact that it cannot actually work, but just as with any other form of sexual immorality, homosexuality is simply not God's best for us. 
But as much as it is a sexual sin like any other, the actual repercussions of homosexuality are far more damaging than many other sins because homosexuality violates the very created order of God. Because in Genesis, God ordered sexual union to take place only within a covenantal marriage bond that would be sexually exclusive between a heterosexual man and a heterosexual woman. In chapters 2, 23 to 24, we read that Eve was the bone of Adam's bones and flesh of his flesh. She was to be called woman, Esau, because she was taken out of man, Es. So from this scripture, we clearly see that Adam's complement was found in a woman, in his corresponding opposite. Now, if the complement to either Adam or Eve had been the same sex, the roles of a helpmeet would have become redundant because unless they were corresponding opposites, there simply would have been no need for them to have been created. And also, if the first man and woman had been permitted by God to enjoy a same-sex covenant, then by virtue of that, the covenant union would have actually ultimately have been rendered illegitimate because the one flesh complementary union is a blood covenant relationship and it represents the blood covenant that Jesus cut at the cross by shedding his blood which is symbolized when a woman's hymen breaks when a husband and wife consummate their marriage and a lifelong blood covenant is then established but with a same-sex relationship you cannot legally cut a blood covenant because it's impossible to have a blood covenant with gay sex and sure Anal sex between two men may shed blood, but this would actually be an unnatural biological function. And I'm going to be super graphic, but establishing a lifelong covenant of exclusive intimacy, loyalty and unconditional love whilst regularly having your back to someone would contradict the very nature of God-designed yada intimacy. And also, same-sex relationships can't complete God's mandate for mankind to fill and subdue the earth, which we read about in Genesis 1.28, because procreation is not genetically possible between same-sex relationships. And in fact, if homosexuality were genetic, like it's sometimes claimed, then surely it would have been phased out by now simply because of its genetic inability to reproduce a gay gene from generation to generation. And actually, many psychologists assert that heterosexuality itself is environmentally and not genetically determined. And if this is the case, then surely this applies to homosexuality too. And even if there is a role played by genetics and other prenatal influences upon homosexuality, studies show that even when this is the case, that it is at the very most only 10%. And this genetic influence is not a direct genetic influence on homosexual orientation, but it's an influence on a separate trait that can sway towards homosexual orientation. But this figure of 10%, however, applies to behaviours of all kinds that all human beings may have a propensity towards. For example, people can be born with a 10% disposition towards depression or anger or promiscuity or alcoholism. But this genetic predisposition in humans reduces even further because of the 90% influence from postnatal 
cultural and environmental influences. So this suggests that homosexuality, however deeply rooted it might be, is in fact changeable. And some studies actually imply that rather than genetic influence, homosexuality occurs because of postnatal environmental and cultural influences and changes in values and expectations as well as personal experiences. Um, so I'm going to share some of those different influences with you but what I do want to say is that there's so much that we just simply can't really know or, or make any, any assumptions about someone's orientation because that would actually just be arrogant and prideful because we all live different lives and we all have different things that are going on on the inside of us, both unknowingly and knowingly. But it does help to get a greater understanding of why we sometimes make the decisions that we make and how you know our sexual journeys can sometimes get developed and so i'm just going to begin by talking about environmental influence from the studies that i have researched and it speaks first about upbringing and so these studies found that adults raised by homosexual parents were up to 12 times as likely to identify themselves as homosexual or bisexual compared to adults raised by heterosexual parents. So this potentially implied that growing up in a homosexual household where there are homosexual adult role models and a complete acceptance of homosexuality can influence the development of a homosexual orientation. And the cultural environment that someone is raised in also appears to play a role. So the study found that the percentage of homosexuality in males raised in an urban environment was more than three times the rate of males reared in rural environments. For women, it was twice the rate. And then the study also explored how same-sex abuse from adults as well as acceptance or rejection from same-sex role models and peer groups during childhood could also foster same-sex attractions and lead to homosexuality and that for various reasons homosexuality could often develop when the normal pattern of heterosexual development was not followed or was violated in some way so when it came to good maternal nurture from the earliest stages of the first few years of nursing and feeding and touching and talking and eye contact and care of physical needs, this stage in our very, very formative young years develops the ability to experience or show affection both to the opposite sex or to the same sex. And then you've got um, in childhood, like during toddler years, identification with and imitation of the parent of the same sex or other close same sex models. And then you've got acceptance and identification with same sex peer groups, including elder brothers and sisters and identification as a child in what is culturally masculine for a boy and for a girl what is culturally feminine so like gender conformity the influence of that on a child and then you've got the day in and day out treatment of boys and girls and then you've got the biological programmed hormonal rush of puberty 
and navigating through your sex drive. And then obviously you've got puberty kicking in. You've got stages in your childhood and your teenage years where you begin to fall in love. And then you've got culturally prescribed sexual behaviors that may influence you in society. And then these stages also included personal sexual preferences and behaviours that can be traced back to early sexual arousal in unique circumstances. And so this study showed that when any of these stages of normal heterosexual development were not followed or they were interrupted or violated, then it could lead to homosexual tendencies. And that could include reasons like sexual abuse um, by the same sex or a variety of ruptures with same-sex role models, sometimes a father or the mother, sometimes peers, um, sometimes including siblings. And quite a common consequence in this study was being or feeling less masculine for males or less feminine for females than others in same-sex peer groups, which could then lead to rejection by peers, even other peers who are homosexual, leading to feelings of being different or gender non-conformity and a growing drive to make up the sensed deficit through a strong connection with an individual of the same sex, which can then become eroticized and then manifested in homosexual behavior. Now, I'm so aware that this actually may not be the way it was for someone, but according to this study, this can be how homosexuality develops. And when it came to cultural influence, in addition to what I've just shared, um, the study spoke about the culture that we live in playing a huge role. So the fact that homosexuality is not only culturally promoted, but that homosexual marriage is now legally acceptable, now presents homosexuality as a completely normal sexual preference. And this no doubt has the potential to influence a person's sexual orientation as they develop and as they learn how to respond to sexual cues presented in society. And advertising and media and the arts and all forms of society now promote homosexuality as equal to heterosexuality. And as a result, sexual cues and arousal are now more likely to be evoked from same-sex attractions as much as heterosexual attractions impacting the development of homosexual attraction, orientation and preference in a much greater way than before. But even with cultural influences... An individual's reaction to random life events is the strongest factor in the development of homosexual orientation, according to this study. And this reaction is what has the potential to become habitual, developing itself into the personality and then leading to homosexual responses. So even within a society where homosexuality is promoted and encouraged, it is nevertheless still the individual's choice on whether it becomes an orientation or not. And so this study explains that when same-sex sexual attraction is first encountered, there will still be a personal choice to act on that attraction or not. This choice will present itself each time attraction is experienced. And some people may never act upon that attraction. Others may choose to fully pursue it. And then I guess there are also those that would simply experiment with the attraction and nothing more. 
and that's how it was for me um i was living with a flatmate who was bisexual and so loads of the bars and the clubs that we went to were gay bars and gay clubs and i was around that scene quite a lot and so for me personally i did experiment but it wasn't even a sexual thing really i think for me what drove me in those um encounters although there weren't many but i think what drove me was i was so insecure and i had so many issues and hang-ups about myself about like not feeling feminine and not thinking that i was attractive not thinking that i was desirable and in that season i found women attractive not because they were attractive but because i found myself so undesirable and so when i did mess around with girls it wasn't a sexual thing it was more a thing of my own feelings of inadequacy and i don't know if that's how it is for other people but that's how it was for me and i think because i was around the gay scene and because my flatmate was bisexual it was normal for me it wasn't even that abnormal because it was culturally acceptable and you know when it comes to a biblical perspective this idea of cultural acceptance is what the bible speaks about when it comes to homosexuality because we read in romans chapter 1 26 to 27 that homosexuality is an unnatural function that has become natural over time and it says for this reason god gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural and in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And so I do believe that as a culture, we've become so desensitized to homosexuality, it has now become a completely natural sexual choice and abnormal has become normal. Yet whether there are prevailing cultural and environmental factors involved or unique interruptions to sexual development and who knows maybe even traces of genetic influence that might drive someone to homosexuality ultimately i believe at its root homosexual orientation is a personal willful decision just like my own promiscuous lifestyle was ultimately my own personal decision and no matter how normal or desirable a lifestyle or orientation that it might be, it isn't God's best for us and it simply isn't compatible with the way God has designed us and the mandate that God has given us as humanity. This though doesn't obviously negate the pain and the complexity and the wrestles and issues that could arise from a homosexual attraction or orientation or lifestyle and God wants to be in the middle of that pain in the middle of that journey and that process and he wants to be there and he wants to bring comfort and he wants to bring strength and endurance and a renewal of the mind and I mean I know some people who have come out of a homosexual lifestyle and still grapple with the actual attraction but they have surrendered their lives to the lord and 
the Lord is an active help in their everyday life as they resist an attraction that actually is still there, but they've chosen to give up that lifestyle because they want God more. And then equally, I know other people that were in a homosexual lifestyle and have come out of the lifestyle and have even gone on to marry the opposite sex and settled down and have been completely delivered from a homosexual lifestyle and orientation. So it's different for different people, but God wants to be on that journey with each person, bringing complete freedom so that we can experience God's best and so that we can live in the fullness of identity and of purpose. And so last but not least, I'm going to unpack the naked truth about pornography and masturbation for us. So pornography takes our legitimate thirst for intimacy, which is an inherent part of our wiring to fully know someone and be known in return. And it turns it into a product to be consumed. And so when it comes to porn consumption, humans are perceived not as image bearers of God, who Christ actually gave his life for, but instead they literally become dispensable objects of consumption. And contrary to the way God actually created sex to be, pornographic sex is a complete violation of that. It's disposable, it's casual, it's demoralizing, it disconnects the spiritual side of sex from the physical side, which the Bible tells us is in fact impossible to do. And I'll just read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 again, where it says there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much spiritual mystery as physical fact. As written in scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever the kind of sex that can never become one. And that really just does describe pornographic sex, you know, where there is no commitment, there is no intimacy, you're left more lonely than ever, and you can't actually become one with the virtual image that is the object of your desire. And actually in Song of Solomon, um, it also tells us that love cannot be bought in the marketplace. It says, love cannot be bought, love cannot be sold, it's not to be found in the marketplace. And although the pursuit of pornography is, of course, rooted in our thirst for intimacy, it actually ends up becoming this pursuit of superficial self-gratification. And instead of finding intimacy, which is actually what people are looking for deep down, we end up finding ourselves like dishing up and indulging and gratifying our sensual lusts and just chalking up endless, you know, visuals or footage of sexually explicit material on tap for us to access at our convenience and pleasure. And our every desire and fantasy and fetish can be catered for, but ironically, the virtual images that, you know, someone is hoping to intimately bond with soon lose their interest and humans end up being reduced to being simply disposable sex objects without dignity, without honor, who just simply get clicked on and clicked off until someone else is found to be able to bond with. And porn violates the one flesh principle that's found in Genesis 2.24, where 
counterfeit cleaving occurs and illicit bonding ends up occurring with a virtual image or character yet the reciprocal mutual loyalty and love and transparency that's needed for true covenant intimacy is absent but even with all of this deception is hard to avoid porn in our society and even in our churches and there are countless reasons why people might find themselves gravitating towards porn and I don't want to discount or judge any of them like whatever the reasons might be that someone might be engaged in porn it still doesn't nullify the damage that it does to a human being. And so to begin with, um, exposure to porn forces itself on the brain like nothing else. Because as we've looked at before, masturbation and orgasms produce a firework display of neurochemicals that with repetition become the preferred neurological route of arousal. But the taboo and the secrecy and the novelty associated with using porn, it intensifies the effect of that preferred route. So as a result, pornography attachment can be so strong and it can often lead to addiction. And anyone who regularly engages in porn and masturbation at any age will end up programming the neurological pathways in their brain to mentally associate porn and masturbation as a behavior with a reward. And the neurological attachment to the person or the object that they are focusing on during masturbation will further strengthen their desire to masturbate. And the more masturbation takes place and powerful chemicals are released, the more the brain will identify it as a preferred route when it comes to sexual arousal and response. And then because of the addictive nature of dopamine, masturbation will then become addictive. And with porn, you actually violate your capacity to be loyal because not only does porn and masturbation lack the ability to truly satisfy us, but each time you masturbate, you are strengthening the attachment that you had with the sexual cue that initially triggered the arousal. And because we are wired to bond, when we watch porn, we end up bonding, like I said, to a virtual image forming soul ties and entering into a covenant with that virtual image or the fantasy, and we end up engaging in counterfeit intimacy. And I actually once read a statistic that it takes 20 seconds for a pornographic image to become permanent in your brain. And actually the impact of porn on the brain is crazy because you get overexcited and undersatisfied. Because when it comes to your pleasure system in your brain where on one side you've got the anticipation system and then on the other side you've got the satisfaction system so when you're engaged in porn you get used to overusing the anticipation part of your pleasure system by you know your imagination kind of running wild and it releases dopamine in extreme levels literally eating away at your brain and the other part of your pleasure system which is the satisfaction part that part is getting starved because that's the part that needs the human touch that's the part that fosters loyalty and releases the hormones associated with commitment feel good hormones that bring you satisfaction and bring you a sense of well-being and actually this chemical dopamine, 
which is what gets released in ridiculously dangerous amounts when you're addicted to pornography is the same chemical that's released when you take cocaine and so it's highly addictive and like i mentioned before it actually eats away at your brain and another thing that happens when you're engaged in porn and masturbation is that you begin to lust after the high of a self-induced orgasm stimulated through masturbation and then you go on to develop a dependency on this mechanical type of approach to sexual arousal and response and if pornography is the sexual cue that triggers the arousal then the use of porn and sexually explicit material and mechanical self-pleasuring will become the only way in which someone can be confined to being aroused. And so this pursuit of quick sexual release becomes the familiar way to respond to sexual arousal and it becomes so difficult to then engage in healthy romantic interactions with a human being. And you end up being accustomed to fantasy and you hinder yourself from enjoying true intimacy and it actually compromises the ability to get sexually aroused in a healthy way which then intensifies the capacity for sexual lust and then the other crazy thing is the way our mirror neurons work they help us to copy behaviors which is super useful when we're trying to learn a new skill where we can observe someone else carrying out an action in our mind and we can mentally plan out that behavior. So when we watch porn or engage in fantasy based on something that we have seen or experienced, we vicariously mirror what we see on the screen or in our fantasy. And this mental mirroring then triggers sexual arousal. But this is so dangerous when applied to like regular viewing of porn which includes violence or aggression or force and other violating behaviors and actually it ends up fueling an aggressive dating culture and hookups and actually a rape culture in some communities or amongst certain groups in society and for young people who are only beginning to really develop their understanding of intimacy and of love and relationships, this use of aggression and violence and disposable sex ends up shaping the way that they perceive sexual intimacy from the onset, stripping them of the capacity for true romance or discovery or intimacy later on in life. And so porn totally violates your understanding of romance because you end up seeing people as sex objects, not as image bearers, and you will end up naturally gravitating towards perceiving someone that you're attracted to through the lens of sexual lust. And emotional and relational communication will be superseded by physical communication. And if you're married or, you know, if you are in a relationship with someone that you actually love, you're going to find it hard to value and beautify your spouse or the person that you're with because you end up invariably objectifying them. And so these are like some of the heartbreaking issues when it comes to porn and the things that God wants to preserve and protect us from. And although when it comes to porn, like flat out, we know that porn is a sin because the word porneia we know is the word for sexual immorality. But actually, when it comes to masturbation, the Bible doesn't discuss masturbation itself. And so there's nothing to outright say that it's a sin or that it's wrong. But 
Anything that masters us simply cannot be good for us. And in most cases, masturbation is self-stimulation with the purpose of sexual release. And it more often than not involves sexual fantasies and or pornography and thinking lustful thoughts. And lust, as we know, is sinful and habitual masturbation is enslaving and it will open the door to other sexual sins but it will also rob someone of healthy God-ordained intimacy. And the Bible clearly tells us to flee lustful passion. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 2-5, where it says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honour, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. And I've had people share with me that they're not addicted to masturbation or they don't fantasize or engage in lust and that it's purely biological and that it's not really a big deal and they could take it or leave it. And that may be the case. But even at the most basic level, your sex drive is being tampered with when you masturbate. And it's been awakened illicitly and it prevents you from enjoying it fully in the context of marriage. And of course, there may be situations where masturbation might not involve fantasy or impurity of thought. And it might even be carried out within the confines of marriage. So when someone is bringing themselves to orgasm with their spouse present, or if someone masturbates when thinking about their heterosexual spouse during long absences which perhaps might even help a couple to draw closer when they're apart but I'd say that this is still risky because being able to self-satisfy even with someone present or as part of sex with your spouse when you're both apart I think it still ends up with you at risk of having a solo experience and navigating things exactly how you like it which then has a tendency to become a preferred approach above sex with your spouse. And then there are also situations where masturbation might be a comfort for someone. For example, situations like a spouse falling sick for an extended period or when someone is perhaps newly widowed. And masturbation might seem to be the only way to release sexual tension It might seem to be the better option than resorting to pornography or fornication. And this definitely, I think, can be an issue for single people who might have to resort to masturbation to pacify their sexual urges or, you know, loneliness. And it might genuinely be their only way of avoiding committing the sin of fornication. Would masturbation be seen as acceptable in those cases I don't know, maybe, I'm not sure, but um, I think the key thing with these unique situations where perhaps masturbation may not be deemed sinful because it's not rooted in lust, then even if it was permissible, the question I think would be, would it be beneficial? Because like it says in 1 Corinthians 6:12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So sure, in some unique cases, it may be permissible. But ultimately, based on God's word, I think no matter the circumstances or motivation, masturbation is something you should try and avoid. 
Obviously, habitual masturbation is super enslaving and will open the door to other sexual sins, but even masturbating now and again, I think it should be avoided because of what it has the potential to do to your sex drive and what it conditions your mind to and what it steals from you in the long run. And as real and as valid as our bodily urges are, and as common and as promoted as masturbation might be, I personally believe that engaging in masturbation full stop severely interrupts and violates our healthy sexual development. And I am so sure that whatever the personal circumstances might be, resisting the urge to masturbate will ultimately lead to a greater reward of true intimacy in due time. So, to bring things to a close, if you are wrestling with sexual stuff or any of the issues I talked about today, then please invite God into the mix, as I always say. Let him guide you, comfort you, deliver you and liberate you so that you can be set free from every lesser love and every counterfeit and so that you can enjoy his very best for you because ultimately no other pursuit of intimacy can compare to his way of pursuing intimacy and it can't compare to what he has for you and although it will involve a rewiring of your desires and a 180 degree turn away from stuff that you may have become accustomed to but God is in the business of setting people free and doing exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine and like I said before this isn't God being a killjoy this is the designer of sexuality saying trust me my way is the safest, most pleasurable, most satisfying way that you can ever enjoy sex. And what I would like to say finally is that God loves us no matter what. Our struggle with sexuality can never separate us from God. And I remember what God said to me a long time ago that he wants people's hearts far more than he desires their purity. And he delivers us from lust to bring us into his love. And I know that God seeks an intimate relationship with us before he seeks our obedience. Because it's out of intimacy that true devotion and voluntary obedience gets birthed. And an encounter with God's love, first and foremost, is what we all need. But the deeply comforting truth is that anyone who does truly engage with the love of God ultimately discovers truth and finds profound freedom and begins to walk in liberty. So even if you are involved in a lifestyle that may be sexually immoral or it may not line up with biblical sexuality, please know that it doesn't keep God's love away from you. But if you are willing to draw close and experience God's love, then ultimately this is what will empower you to receive his best for you. And the more you open your heart to him, the more you will begin to receive all that he has for you. And it will be rooted in true intimacy and it will be better than anything you could have ever imagined. And I actually just want to declare that over each and every one of you as I pray. So yeah, Father, I thank you so much for your incredible design for our sexuality and for sex. And I thank you that what you have for us and what you have designed us for is so beautiful and worthy of the pursuit. 
and I thank you for true intimacy and I thank you God that um, you will just take the words of this podcast and your anointing and that you will just break every yoke and that every single person listening to this podcast would be so set free in any areas that they may be struggling in and that there would be a greater desire for each person listening for true intimacy Um, no matter what circumstances they may be in, like whether they're having the most amazing journey when it comes to their sexuality or whether they're struggling, may the pursuit and the desire and the hunger and the resolve for true intimacy be such an encouragement for each and every person who's listening. And Father, just break the hold of every sexual immorality and every place of worldly sex and every desire for worldly sex. Lord, I ask you just to rewire it away from everything every counterfeit and towards true intimacy and I just thank you Holy Spirit for your leading and your guidance God your companionship and I thank you sweet Jesus that you are love and that you created us for love and it's for love that you draw us close to you and so I also just pray that your unconditional glorious love would just be tangibly felt by every single person who listens to this podcast in jesus name i pray amen thank you so much for joining me for today's show all related social media handles and links can be found in the notes section if you did enjoy today's episode then please do feel free to share it and do subscribe to the podcast if you want to know when a new episode is heading your way If you'd like to get in touch, you can do that via Instagram or Facebook, or you can head over to livinginlight.co.uk. I cannot wait to be with you guys again, and thank you so much for listening to the Living in Light podcast.